0: Welcome to Wallula Christian Church. I am Zach Bolin. I know there's a number of you who are new uh, coming with the CGSC, and uh, I am the youth pastor here at Wallula Christian Church. I work with the middle school and high school students, and so thank you so much for being here. Um, it's great to preach on Labor Day, and uh, uh, I want to start off by just sort of telling a story about uh, when I proposed to my my wife. Um, the, the thing about the proposal was I wanted to do it in a specific way, not the proposal. I had that planned, but leading up to the proposal, uh, Maeve lived in St. Louis and I lived in the Kansas City area. So our entire dating relationship had always been long distance, which means every, th- every time that we met, it was always a big deal. She would come and hang out for either a day or a weekend, or I would go over there and hang out for a day or weekend. And so this sounds really silly, but I had never been bored with Maeve. Like, we've never been bored. I didn't know what it was like to hang out with her and have nothing to do. Like, if you're, if you're dating and, you're, and you live in the same town, you'll go watch a movie and then say, what do you want to do next? And the other person will say, I don't know. We never had that because every time we visited each other, we always had stuff planned for the short period of time that we had. When I realized I wanted to propose to her, I I had one goal, which was I want to do one long road trip before I actually propose. I want to be stuck in a car with Maeve for a long time, and I want to experience what it's like to be frustrated. I mean, I'd been frustrated before, but you know, like when you're frustrated and you still can't go anywhere because you're stuck in a car, and what it's like to be bored and, and working together, and... And we were driving to Washington, D.C. I, I had done an internship there and so for about seven months. And so I, I had some friends there. We were going we to go there, um, and I was going to propose uh, on mid, uh, December 31st at midnight. And uh, I had that stuff planned, but I wanted to know, like, let me just, I want a long road trip to, just in case there's some sort of last-minute red flag that it's like, you know what, never mind. And so I can, if I need to pull out, uh, it'll, it'll be brought up there. Uh, luckily, that did not happen. I actually have a picture uh, of the actual proposal right then. It was uh, 12.01, uh, midnight, 12, uh, exactly midnight, Eastern Time. We were the first couple of Eastern Time, I guess. so Because I had my watch, I was, waiting, I was waiting for the fireworks to go off, and apparently they don't do that in Washington, D.C. So it was just just me with my watch. and uh, But I proposed, and she said yes. So that went really well. However, I did kind of get the response I wanted. We we actually had some tough times in the car, and it's funny because if you think about an argument that you've had with your spouse, a lot of times you'll start off by saying, you know, it was a big argument, but really it was a dumb argument. Like it was what we argued about was it was kind of embarrassing to talk about. But for us, the biggest disagreement we had on that trip occurred with something I didn't even think was going to be a big deal, uh, and that was how we were going to get there because we're driving along, and I brought my GPS. And I had it set up uh, on the mantle, on the mantle, on my dash. And uh, I think, hey, this is a no-brainer. Why would we not use this? But Maeve does not want to use the GPS. Maeve would rather use, anybody? A map, a straight up, a great big Rand McNally 50 stater. You open it up and it takes up like your whole front, like the whole thing. She wants to use that. And I said, why why would you use a, a paper map when you have technology telling you where and when you'll get there. It'll tell you what you need to know. And she would rather use the map. And so that was our big disagreement (laughs) that that even to this day, we kind of will jokingly bicker about that. Um, But I will say that after all is said and done, and we're married now nine years, and it's great, uh, that now that I'm not trying to win an argument anymore, I will say that whenever I do have one of those Rand McNally maps, and I look at it, There is something kind of cool about it because I can have a GPS on my phone and it'll tell me how to get somewhere, but if I really want to see where I'm going, you know, I can pinch it, you know, smaller and smaller so it'll span out and I see, like, Kansas on my little screen and it just doesn't really show a lot, but when you open up that map and it shows every single road where you're going, you can flip over to the next state and see where you're going to go and it just gives a bigger picture A holistic picture of where you're going. And there is something really cool about having that with you. Today, we are going to be finishing up our series of one. Two weeks ago, Lance preached about one problem and one solution that we have. Last week, we looked at one family, and today we're looking at this idea of one church. And so before I keep going, uh, if you would, if you have your Bible with you, you can open up to Ephesians chapter 3. That's where we're going to be today. And this whole map analogy... ties into Ephesians because with Ephesians, it's kind of God's roadmap for our faith in the book of Ephesians, specifically chapter 3, specifically the first part of chapter 3, where we're going to be today. In Ephesians chapter 3, we have this, a little help seeing the whole picture of what God's plan is for us, this roadmap of faith. And so we are going to start there uh, in verse 1 looking at what, what is the big deal with the church? Why should we even love the church? Why should we be one as a church? Ephesians chapter 1, or I'm sorry, Ephesians chapter 3, verse 1, goes like this. For this reason, I, Paul, the prisoner of Christ Jesus for the sake of you Gentiles, surely you have heard about the administration of God's grace that was given to me for you. That is the mystery made known to me by revelation. As I have already written briefly. In reading this, then you will be able to understand my insight into the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to people in other generations, and it has now been revealed by the Spirit to God's holy apostles and prophets. This mystery is that through the gospel, the Gentiles are, are heirs together with Israel, members together of one body and shares together in the promise in Jesus Christ. So we'll stop there. And the first thing is this, why should we care about God's church? Why should we love the church? Why should we be one? Um, The first thing is, point number one, is it answers life's mysteries. It answers life's mysteries. Paul says, for this reason, I, Paul, a prisoner for Jesus. Was Was he like a real prisoner? I mean, I know he'd been in prison before. No, like as he's writing this, he's literally in a prison. The traditional view is that the prison epistles are Ephesians, Colossians, uh, Philippians, and Philemon. And so Paul, as he's writing this letter, is, is in ha- house arrest, cuffed to a Roman soldier. So yeah, he's a prisoner for Jesus. And here's where we're going to camp out just a little bit here uh, on the first sentence. For this reason I, Paul, the prisoner of Christ Jesus, for the sake of you Gentiles. Okay, I'm, I'm not a doctor, Okay, so I'm not going to say, here's what Paul's thinking or feeling. But it seems like he has ADD from here on out. Because if you take this sentence I just read, right, he's starting off with a prayer. For this reason, I, Paul, the prisoner of Christ Jesus, for the sake of you Gentiles, and then there's this dash, this ellipsis, this marking right after Gentiles. If you skip verses 2 through 13, the rest of the stuff, and then go straight to 14 and just read it like it's one sentence... It would sound like this. For this reason, I, Paul, the prisoner of Christ Jesus, for the sake of you Gentiles, verse 14, kneel before the Father from whom every family in heaven and on earth derives its name. It sounds like this one nice statement. But he doesn't. He starts off, for this reason, I, Paul, the prisoner of Christ Jesus, for the sake of you Gentiles, dash. And when you see that dash, there's a breaking off of thought, a tangent he's going on. It's called an ellipsis. It's when you start in one place, and then you just go another. So as Paul begins to write, he stops all of a sudden. And what causes him to stop? What is the word right before the ellipsis that makes him start writing? And then he stops. He writes the word, and he's like, oh, dash. And then he proceeds to go off on another tangent. It says Gentiles. Just writing that word causes him to launch into outer space and go off on this tangent. And as soon as he says it, he thinks about his mission. He's the apostle to the Gentiles, and then in verse two, he uses this word mystery. Did you hear it? I read it three times, and if you read the rest of the section, he uses it four times within thirteen verses. The mystery. It's kind of hard because we don't have a word when they were when they were writing the Bible into English and, and translating. There wasn't we didn't have a mystery word for them to use, and so they actually transliterated. Uh, the greek word is mysterion they just said close enough we'll just take your word and make our own word out of it but the thing is it doesn't quite mean the same thing when when we hear mystery we think mysterious or maybe some harry potter book or or one of my favorite shows was lost and every episode you're like where did the polar bear come from or there's always something are they in the future or the past how did this even happen and there's all these mysteries that are left unknown and it's mysterious it's awesome But that's not what Paul meant when he uses this word mystery over and over and over again. I had a professor in college who would say that in the Bible, mystery is meant more along the lines of, and this is the quote, heaven's little secret. Sounds like a little plaque you would put on your mantle. Heaven's little secret. He would say it's heaven's little secret that somehow got revealed. That's what mystery is. Gary Weedman is the president of Johnson University, which used to be Johnson Bible College. And he had done some study on um, Alexander the Great. Uh, and if you, he's very famous in, in history. His dad was a, a, a well-known general. Um, but one of the things that he had read in, in um, Alexander's notes was one of the ways he prepared for battle and how he did battle is that he would have all these generals, and he would go up to one general, and he would give them just one piece of the battle plan and then you'd go up to another general, and he'd give him a piece, and another general him a piece, and another general a piece. And they would only have a piece of the battle plan that they were supposed to go and accomplish. And then after the battle was over, they would all come back together and essentially debrief, and they would lay their piece on the, on the table, their part of the plan. And what's interesting is their pieces started to fit together, that what they took care of here complemented what went on over here here, and then they all started to fit together to where it formed this one big plan. And when the whole plan came together, they would stand back and look at it and say, Mysterion, this secret has now been revealed. It wasn't this sort of mysterious thing. It was It was something that was a secret that is now revealed. And that is what you have here. This is what Paul is talking about. Paul says that this mystery was given to me by revelation. I didn't go to the ephesus library and read about this god gave this to me and this all builds up this mystery to verse six it says this mystery is that through the gospel gentiles are heirs together with israel members together of one body and shares together in the promise in christ jesus this does not seem like a big deal to us oh this mystery now the gentiles are heirs with the with the jews And we're like, okay. But you don't understand. Like, let's take a step back from the, I think it was uh, Genesis 13, starting with Abraham, all the way through Jesus, it's only been the Jews. They're the chosen ones. Everything that's happened in in the Bible up to this point is the Jews. What they wear is set apart. What they eat is set apart. How they worship is set apart. Where they go is set apart. Everything is set apart. It's just the Jews. And now there's this mystery that's revealed, which is this. Now the Gentiles get to be a part of this. To us, we're like, oh, sweet, because we're the Gentiles. But to the Jews, this is like a huge deal. Now they're, being, now they're getting let in on in the actual secret that their, their history is not the only history. God is revealing to them, okay, this is actually now for everyone. When Jesus came, it is not just you, the Jews now, but it's the Jews and the Gentiles, and they will be fellow heirs They will be fellow members, fellow partakers. God's great mystery is that somehow in Christ, all of us are one. Now, if we know, to us this seems simple because we're not Jewish and we're like, sweet, we get to be a part of this. And if we know this, that means that, hey, if if all of us are one in Christ Jesus, uh, that we could easily, perfectly implement this. If you're a Christian, we're all one and the church should be one. And this should be no problems for us. Except it's, I'll, it's a big problem for us. Uh, we, by nature, are really divisive. I mean, take any topic and you will find division among people in the room. I'll, I'll give you an example, and I'll give you a, sort of a monotonous topic. Let's just say geography. Not what you believe, not anything else, just where you live. So if we look at worldwide... And you look at geog- countries versus countries, like let's say the Olympics. we say, yeah, we're the best because we're competing, and it's us against them. And so because of where we live, we're, we like us the best, and, and everyone else is second. Okay, well, that's because you're competing. But like once you get to America, right, does that mean all Americans are really united based on geography? Well, not really. I mean, if you're, if you're from the Midwest, what's your thought on people who live on the West Coast? Or if you're military and you're here in Kansas, what was your first thought when you found out, oh good, Kansas, that's where we get to go. You probably had a thought about those people or just Florida, Florida's always weird. I don't know why it's always in the news for the weirdest things, but even in America, we have this division of those people versus us. Okay, fine. What about people just in Kansas? Surely we all live in the same place in the same state. What division would it matter where you live in Kansas? Now, this is just me personally, but I love living uh, in northeastern Kansas, where we are now. And the thought of moving to western Kansas. I mean, have you ever driven I-70 to Colorado? What a nightmare. Like, you have to, like, (laughs) mentally prepare yourself. All right, do we have enough stuff? Where's our pit stops? There's nothing out there. At least I think. I don't live out there. I mean, who would want to live in western Kansas? Maybe some of you do. Maybe some of you are like, you know what? I don't like the judgmental attitudes of you Eastern Kansansers. Whatever. You see what I mean? Okay, so hey, so people in Kansas may be divisive on geography. Look, how about just Leavenworth County? What possible division would we have on where you live in Leavenworth County? <laughs> Last week, or this past week, I was at a middle school cross-country meet. And uh, you got to realize where we are as Wallula uh, we have a lot of schools from the north and south. And so we have Fort Leavenworth, Leavenworth-Lansing. We have Baser-Bonner, piper Tongi. I mean, there's a lot of kids in our youth group. Uh, so I'm at this cross-country meet, and there's a lot of schools that I'm rooting for. I'm rooting for, I'm rooting for my, the students in the youth group. And so the eighth-grade girls come up, and they start running. And I'm talking to a mom uh, whose son I went to school with, high school with. And so I'm, I'm hanging out with her and we're, we're standing like on the line where the runners come by and, and she's not even she's there to watch her grandson. And so she has no dog in, this, in the, the eighth grade girls. She doesn't care about this race. She was there for the seventh grade boys one. And, and so I see Megan and Carly Billings coming down and I say, yeah, Megan, yeah, Carly, go Bonner. And she goes, oh, Bonner? We don't root for Bonner because she's Lansing. And even within the same... And if you think everyone in the entire world, you could boil it down to one county and there will still be divisions based purely on geography. She doesn't even know these girls or care. I mean, there's no interest one way or the other. And she's like, no, I don't. If they're at that school. And she's not being mean, but you get what I'm saying. We are so good at dividing. And I, this is just geography. What if I just start throwing out stuff like how do we divide based on politics? How do you divide based on education? How do you view other people? How do you divide based on age? How do you divide based on just a sports team? How about religion? And not even like Christianity versus whatever. How about just denominations within Christianity? How easy do we divide? We divide so much over so little. Peter also had a difficult time with this. We know about Peter's struggles with Jesus, and he denied Jesus. But you think, oh, in Acts 2, he's now preaching, and it says that uh, he, he offered salvation. It says, hey, Jesus came, uh, and it's for everyone. It's for everyone. And it said thousands of people came to know Jesus that day, even Jews and Gentiles. And you think, man, we got it. We did it. The church is growing. And then later on in Acts 10, it says Jesus has this, or Peter has this vision where he sees this cloth, the sheet come down, And in the vision, there's all these animals in the sheet being lowered down to them. And some some of the animals are clean and some are unclean, according to Jewish customs. And and God, the voice says, you can eat. You know, kill, eat, and uh, eat eat these animals. And and Peter says, oh, I can't do that. Some of these animals are unclean, and I'm Jewish. And the voice, God says, no, no, no. Remember, it's no longer Jew or Gentile. You're all one. But Jesus took care of that. And three times, Peter has this thing with threes, he says, I can't eat that. And then finally, he, the voice says, no, you can. It's no longer, it does not matter. He has to be reminded of that. And then there's this story in Galatians 2. I guess Peter kind of liked eating pork uh, because he's hanging out with some Gentiles and he's having a pulled pork sandwich. I don't know what he's eating, but he's eating some unclean stuff. And he's thinking, you know what? It doesn't matter anymore. Jew, Gentiles out the window, we're all one in Christ. And he's living and you're thinking, oh, great. And so Paul's writing this uh, the story about Peter. Uh, so I'm gonna skip ahead. I'm gonna read the end and then come back to the beginning. So as he's eating with them, James and some other Jews come to come to where they are. And when Peter sees them, the, the circumcised group, it says that he draws back and he separates himself from the Gentiles because he was afraid of those who belonged to the circumcised group. And then the other Jews joined him in his hypocrisy. Verse 13. So that by their hypocrisy, even Barnabas was led astray. And in verse 11, as Paul's telling the story, he begins with saying this. When Peter came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. Peter still struggled with this thing of division, of pushing people away, of like, hey, we should accept the Gentiles. But then when the really good Christians came, he's like, well, I'm not really with them. And he still struggled with that. It seems that a lot of learning that we go through is really just relearning. Like the, what the Bible teaches, we know. We just have to be retaught over and over again. How come I have to keep relearning this lesson that I already know? The mystery is that we are all one in Jesus Christ. Everyone. So even if you go to Bonner Springs, you're still one. <laughs> that we are all one in Jesus, no matter your background or where you're from or anything else. All right, that was the first point. That was the big one. That was the big idea. Point number two, we're going to pick this up a little bit. What makes the church worth loving that we should be invested in trying to be one as a church? Well, number one is it answers life's mysteries. And number two, it makes room for us even when we mess up. It makes room for us even when we mess up. Verse 7 says, I became a servant of this gospel by the gift of God's grace given me through the working of his power although i am less than the least of all the lord's people this grace was given me to preach to the gentiles the boundless riches of christ and to make plain to everyone the administration of this mystery which for the ages past was kept hidden in god who created all things it makes room for ev- it makes room for us even when we mess up the church does Paul says, although I am least, this is a weird one, although I am less than the least of all the Lord's people. For as much as Paul's done, as, as Paul does and has done, he, man, he just is super humble. And not like, I'm so humble. But he'll say like, I am the least of everyone. I am I'm the least, I am less than the least. I am the leastest of every one of God's people. That's how he sees himself. And he says this in different parts of the Bible. In 1 Corinthians 15, 9, he says, I was untimely born. In 1 Timothy 1.15, he says, Christ Jesus came to save sinners of whom I am the most. That's kind of a weird way to say it. Came to save sinners of whom I'm the most. I'm the foremost of all the sinners. I'm the, I'm the best of all the sinners. I'm the best sinner here at this church. I don't know if that's exactly what he's trying to say, but he's painting this picture. He goes on to say, but... But this grace was given to me so that I may preach to the Gentiles the boundless riches of Christ. And boundless is this idea of a a ravine um, that has so much water in it, you can't feel the bottom. And no matter how much you swim or try to go down, you can't feel it. And it says as we get the riches of Christ, it's so much that there's no bottom to it. We can't feel it. It just keeps going and going. He says, I'm going to make plain to all the Gentiles this mystery that you are now heirs with the Jews. Uh, A couple months ago, we went to Mexico uh, on a mission trip to work with um, our missionaries, uh, Susan and Sean and Chastegui. And the day before we left, we had a a team meeting for a couple of hours. And one of the things we did was practice doing our testimonies. And I don't know if you've ever done this before. Um, It's kind of an intimidating process if you've never spoken before, but we were supposed to write out our testimony, and then we had to practice giving it in five minutes, and then like in three minutes, and then two minutes because we don't know what's gonna happen on the trip. We may go somewhere and they'd say, hey, can one of you get up and, and just you know, share your fate, share your story, share your testimony? And we wanted to be ready for if that happens, instead of being like, hey, do you wanna go? And they're like, no. So that way we actually got up and did it. Um, it's difficult if you've never done it before, especially if you're a high schooler to give your testimony. And one of the common complaints or one of the common things that's brought up is that I don't have a cool story. I, I mean, what am I gonna say? and they feel like, uh, not just our students, but just anyone that I've, whenever I've done this before, people have said this, I don't have a really good story. And if you look at just who God uses in the Bible, I'm gonna, I'm gonna stand down here, and I'm gonna intentionally walk to sort of show a progression, okay? So I'm gonna start down here and just say, let's say Job. Now we know the story of Job and what he had to go through, but if you were to look at Job's story right before the book of Job starts, what do you have? Well, you have a guy who's really successful, who has a family that loves him, and who just tries to serve God. Matter of fact, that's why he was chosen. It was because he had all this great stuff going for him. And the devil's like, well, of course he has all this good stuff going for him. You're blessing him. So you have a guy who nothing bad has really happened, has a great family, great job, just wants to serve God and follow him. Right? And then we know the, the, the book of Job, how all this bad stuff happens. But even when that happens, he still stays faithful. But if you were to say, hey, Job, can you write your testimony? He'd be like, hey, I'm just... Trying to serve God and do what I can, right? So you have people like that, and later on we read about Joseph, and Joseph kind of in the similar boat. Just wants to serve God, uh, and he's faithful to him. But early on in his life, he gets betrayed by his brothers. Uh, he gets thrown into slavery, and for decades he is going through a hard time. For decades he's going through this, and he still remains faithful. As a matter of fact, fun fact. There's only two people in the Bible that says they never sinned, or it never mentions them sinning. Obviously, Jesus, he never sinned. And Joseph, it never mentions that he sinned. I'm not saying he didn't. I believe that he did. I'm just saying uh, he's a man of such integrity that it never, none of the stories ever mention him doing that. Later on, we read about a guy named David. And David, early on, man, super faithful, had a faith that challenged even the, the nation of Israel. And he stood up to Goliath, and he took down Goliath. He became king of all Israel because of his faith. And then he uh, got caught up in some stuff, slept with a woman and killed her husband. Publicly, this is all known. This is a pretty big deal. You have a guy who was following God faithfully. People were looking to him, and he was publicly shamed. Now, you can use that for any, anything you want. This could be a, a church leader or a politician, but someone in the public eye who's going through that. And his example was he followed God even in the midst of all of this uh, horrible stuff that he did and he humbled himself and he still stayed faithful to god and god still used him you have peter who we already talked about he just goes back and forth man that guy is like with jesus he's preaching and thousands of people are coming to know god and know jesus and uh and then he still screws up he denied jesus but then even when the gentiles are coming he's like yeah i'm not really with them okay i'll eat with you but never mind and even while he's at the height of serving god man that guy is inconsistent And he still goes back and forth on what he believes. And then the very last one, the guy with the cool, the cool testimony story, would be Paul. Man, that guy, according to the world, had everything. He was smart and religious. Uh, He was uh, faithful in what he did, and he was also killing Christians. He was a horrible guy. And then he became a Christian. He started following, and because of that, you read all the stuff of, "Hey, I was the worst." And you think, man, that's a kind of cool story, right? He was killing Christians, and now he's, like, preaching about Jesus. Take this whole spectrum of people, whether you're like Job and you're just faithfully serving God or whether you're like Paul and you were doing horrible things, and then you become a Christian. In all of this, you probably can fit your story into one of these, whether you had a, a tough childhood growing up and you remained faithful or whether you were, you were like David and you were in the church and then you just screwed up big time. In all of these, God still was able to use them because they were faithful. So I don't know what your story is, but whatever it is, no matter how boring or exciting or bad or good, God can use your story. What's so great about the church is that no matter what your background is, not only are you welcome, but God can use your story as long as you're faithful. There's room in the church for us even when we mess up. And as Christians... When we do life with messed up people, we have this awesome chance to help them come back to Christ. And for some people, for a lot of people in the church, they need help over and over and over again, coming back to Christ again and again. What makes the church worth loving? Well, number one, it answers life's mysteries. Number two, it makes room for us even when we mess up. And number three, it's the key to eternity. In verse 10, it says, His intent was that now through the church... The manifold wisdom of God should be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly realms, according to his eternal purpose that he accomplished in Christ Jesus our Lord. In him and through faith in him, we may approach God with freedom and confidence. I ask you, therefore, not to be discouraged because of my suffering for you, which are your glory. So as we wrap this up, we get to verse 10. It says, his intent was that now through the church, pause right there. This is kind of an ego boost. This is because he's talking about us. Through the church, through you and me, and here is this crazy part. I had to read it over and over again. Through the church, we make known the wisdom of God. Okay, sure. We make known the wisdom of God to the rulers and authorities. Sure. We make known the wisdom of God to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly realms. What? We're making this known to the spiritual realm? Mark Scott is a professor of uh, of the New Testament. And he had said this, that the angels are not omniscient. They're not all-knowing. Demons are not omniscient. The devil is not omniscient. Only God is all-knowing. But when the demons and the angels and those in the spiritual realm look at the church, they're supposed to figure out the plan of God in the world. When they see us, they experience mysterion. And they, we think that they have it together because they're angels and they're with God. But the angel and the demons think that we have it together when we follow God and his plan for the church. And what it is that we know is that this is the key to eternity. And what this key is, is that through Jesus we can approach God. God. Through Jesus, we can be saved. Through Jesus, we have a hope. In verse 12, it says, In Christ and through faith in him, we may approach God with freedom and confidence. I have a, a friend who uh, I went to college with, and his, he just lost his father-in-law last week. And, and I didn't know the father-in-law. Um, and I'm, I'm really just, I was pretty good friends with him, but I just see him on Facebook a lot. But apparently they were really close. And he works at a church as well. And so he was kind of struggling, like, uh, when you lose someone and then you have to go back to church, and how do you handle that, uh, especially when you're in front of people? And so he wrote this on Facebook yesterday, he posted this, as he wrestled with, what does the church actually have to offer in times like this? And this is what he said. This past week has been one of the most difficult weeks for my family, and I'm learning there are things that are constantly pulling us away from each other. I have hiked the Rockies, the Tetons, the Grand Canyon, and have been amazed. I've even had my breath taken away. But those beautiful pieces of art have never drawn me back to community that I was isolated from when I go through pain and loss and grief. What has always brought me back to community is when I'm friends, is when I'm with friends, singing and learning about a God that pulls us closer together through our relationships and his teaching. Nothing is more inspiring than when I'm with friends who are getting kicked in the teeth by life and are still choosing to doubt, believe, and grieve, and be joyful in community. It's what keeps me coming back and believing in the local church. Let us be a church where we live out the mystery of God. Let us be a church that can make known who Jesus is to anyone who would hear. And let us be a church where we recognize that in Christ there are no outsiders that we are simply one church. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for this time that we have before you. Lord, we thank you ultimately for Jesus, for the hope that we have in him. And that no matter what our past and what our history, that you draw us to you. Lord, we pray that our story could be one that is used to bring others to know you, good or bad, faithful or not. Help us to follow you, to be more like Christ in all we do. be humble uh, in, in what we do and who we are, and to let our lives point to Jesus. Lord, we thank you for where we are. We thank you that we have this opportunity to come and worship, but we pray that you would be with us as we leave, that it not be about what we do on Sunday mornings, but it would be about those we interact with and the way we live our lives when no one is around. Lord, thank you for who you are. Thank you for Jesus. Amen.